regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everybody, uh, welcome to the, to the 10th episode of Datacast and today I'm uh, on the line with Matthias Rest. Matthias, um, a linguist turned data scientist, finished his PhD in May 2018 and is currently working as a manager in data analytics at Life Intent. In his day-to-day, he builds dashboards and models and runs analysis that drive business decisions and provides stakeholders with meaningful access to data. He enjoys empowering people with data by visualizing and analyzing various types of data visually and all with statistical and machine learning approaches. He is an avid R, RStudio, RStudio Connect users. So yeah, Matthias, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm honored to be here. Fantastic. So um, I want to start out talking about your educational background. Absolutely. Um, you got, uh, I, I see that you got a master's degree in uh, English, history and political science from uh, the University of Regensburg back in Germany. So what about these study subjects that got you uh, initially hooked and how was your uh, master's experience back then? Oh, yeah, um, for sure. So essentially right out of school, I... I always had like a, a liking for for English and um, for political science. I would say coming out of high school, and my my path isn't as straightforward as other people's, maybe. So I actually took like I took a shot in med school and law school, and decided that that wasn't for me. So yeah, I ended up doing English history and political science, and um, it was overall a great experience. I think those are uh, very important subjects that are not taught enough in high schools these days, especially political science. Can you discuss your master thesis? Because I was looking at a your profile and I saw that you did your thesis on um, the formation and transformation of 9-11 memory in American News Weekly. That sounds pretty interesting. So I just want to hear, you know, what, what do you do for that project? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so um, when I was writing my master's thesis, I actually... This this is a project, weirdly enough, that comes that came out of my um, uh, my high school thesis. If you can't believe it, like in, in Germany, um, high school students have to or had to write a thesis to graduate from high school. So I kind of I wanted to spun I wanted to spin this further, and um, so since when I wrote it in I think I wrote it in two thousand ten. That was that must have been it. Yeah, and so. It happened a while since since nine eleven happened, and I wanted to see how the representation of the nine of nine eleven essentially changed throughout the years. And to do that, I, I compared um, news weeklies. I compared Newsweek, um, Time Magazine, and the New Yorker, 
in terms of their 9-11 related output. And it was quite fascinating because in the beginning, you had way more representation, understandably, than, you know, a couple of years down the road. So you had like the five-year anniversary. And then I was already already done by by, by the time the 10-year anniversary rolled around. But it it was really interesting to see how how essentially the perception shifted a little bit and what essentially also what the content was that changed mm-hmm. going moving further away from 9-11 proper right the work in uh, that revolved around my, my master's thesis was mostly um qualitative so mm-hmm. i compared articles from those news weeklies and but you're right. I mean, it, it laid a, a solid foundation in terms of, of doing research and how to scope a project. I think project management skills are, are often undervalued, but they're so important. And essentially being able to estimate how long something takes is, is a very important skill that, that transfers to, to pretty much any field. And out of my experience, I would say tack on at least two two weeks or four weeks to any big project because oftentimes you know you want to get done faster than you actually can, and there's always there's always roadblocks that you can't always foresee. So mm-hmm. you know that was an important skill that I took out of that experience. Definitely. So after finishing your master, you um, joined the professional teacher training program working for the Bavarian government. So uh, let's go over your training experience during those two years. It t- it's it's it takes quite a long time to become an academic high school teacher in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, seven years in total, so five years of, of academic sc- studies at the university, and then two years of a, what's called a practical teacher training program, where you act- where you're already deployed in in um, schools and you have supervisory teachers. And um, I went through that and. And going through it, I realized that that's when I essentially realized that I like teaching people things, but I, I don't quite like teaching fifth graders English. <laughs> and that essentially, and it's an important, I mean, it's an important realization that came quite late, but the, the way the, the training program is structured that is such that during your university years, you don't really have a lot of exposure to the classroom itself, right? So that usually happens during those two years. And it's it's the Bavarian government because teachers in, in Germany are employed by the government, by the, by the state governments. Mm-hmm. So they're not employed by the schools. I see. Um, which means they, they can't be they can't be easily fired, for example. So they usually once they get a full time or tenure position then they're unfireable, which has advantages and disadvantages. But um, yeah, so during those two years I essentially realized that I wanted to that I wanted to go back I see. to the states and and pursue a PhD yeah um uh, just one note though so from your experience as an academic high school teacher what were some of the skills that that um, proved to be very useful and um, transferable throughout your academic and uh, industry uh, thus far oh absolutely I mean People don't often see it that way, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to be a teacher anymore, but some of the transferable skills absolutely are um, time management, project management. You have to, oftentimes you have to plan ahead for, I don't know, three to four months 
um, and you have to fit quite a lot into into very little time. So if you don't have a solid plan in place, then things get um, crazy fairly quickly. Um, so that's certainly uh, one thing. And then two, you're you have to adjust to being you have to adjust to to essentially teaching to a very broad audience, if that makes sense. So you teach to I don't know people like students who are 10 to 11 years old all the way to up like all the way through like 19 mm-hmm. 18 19 years of age and that's that requires quite a lot of flexibility and i think flexibility being flexible is a is a skill that has to be learned or can be learned and is very important especially these days with with projects being you know canceled or or you you getting a signal from your boss that you have to switch gears or you have to readjust so you have to be that's what i mean by transferable in that sense it can be very easily applied to the industry or to to an academic environment uh, after those two years in as a, as a teacher you decided to uh, pursue a phd in linguistic in the u.s so what what is the motivation behind this decision and uh why did you choose to go to uh Boston university Uh, good questions. Um, I get them. I get. I get asked them a lot because Ball State is a little out of the ways, and it's kind of in in Muncie in the no man's land. So, um, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit. So, during when I was still in um, at university in Regensburg, I did an exchange program with a, a different university in the U.S. in Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, Murray State University, and. Even back then, I knew that I, at some point I wanted to go back to the U.S. Um, I didn't know how that would look and and how this could be accomplished, but um, I then realized that I could enroll in a PhD program, right? And even when I was was in at Murray State back in in those days, I had kind of already scoped out um, programs, and I just liked the I just liked the PhD program at Ball State, I guess. That's why that's why I applied there. Mm-hmm. And crazily enough crazily enough, I I only applied to one PhD program, which is kind of if you think about it, that's kind of crazy. A lot of most most grad students I know they apply at least to to three or four, if not more. Right? So it was I mean, I guess, you know, the odds were in my favor, so that's why it worked out. And Everything happened at the right time too. Um, the like, like you said, the, the the teacher training program takes two years, and I but I had started the application process way earlier than that, and it just turned out to Ball State just didn't take any PhD students in one year, and which essentially would have ruined my 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 two year program. Right, I would have to essentially drop out of it. So I. Got done with my teacher program in, in in February of 2013, and then worked worked as an academic high school teacher until July of 2013, and then immediately started the PhD program in August. So there was no there was essentially no downtime um, or time lost in between. So that worked out great that way. I see. Is there any reason that you decided to do the program in linguistic? You know, what, what about what about linguistic that um that uh, get you interested in yeah like what, what oh yeah. yeah 
So since I already studied linguistics, um, I mean, the, the English studies at the University of Regensburg were pretty linguistics focused or linguistics heavy. So I that appealed more to me than, say, I don't know, literature or rhetoric and composition. So I, I don't like those subjects as much. So I, and I always had a knack for linguistics. So that it was, it was a, it was a, a natural fit, I would say, in the sense that that w was the next logical step if I wanted to become more of a subject matter expert than I already was. I saw that for your PhD dissertation. You um, did an in-depth analysis of the German tweets where you investigated the interaction between language demographics and personality of German users on Twitter. So would you mind discussing your, your PhD thesis in more detail? Yeah, so the reason for for my for my PhD dissertation essentially, um, and for for focusing on German Twitter is the the fairly low user base, um, in Germany only twelve million active users, which means that German as a Twitter language is highly understudied, mm -hmm. and um, and the other big reason is I knew fairly early on in my academic program in my PhD program that I didn't want to go into academia, that I wanted to focus on the industry. That was around the time, like maybe 2014, um, a lot of people were talking about alternative academic careers or careers uh, as an alternative to academia because, you know, jobs as tenured professors were getting scarce. And honestly, you don't want to end up as an adjunct, adjunct professor um, on a contract basis. I don't think that's that's a very... I mean, you know, depends on what you want to do, but that wasn't for me. So, um, and I knew I had to, I wanted to build uh, my data science skill set. And one, a really important key moment was being at the, um, the Linguistic Summer Institute at the University in Chicago, mm -hmm. put on by the, the Linguistic Society of America in, in 2015, and, um, which is like a, a month long intensive program. Uh, where you get to take classes with uh, world-renowned linguists and um, researchers. And that was a key moment because I saw all of a sudden was exposed to a lot of other grad students and, and people from all over the place who had already gotten started doing R. And I had, I had done some R at the time, but not to the extent other people had. So I was, I, I kind of felt like I was in this, in this bubble and Honestly, at Ball State, nobody was not a lot. Not a lot of people were using R, like at, at least not to the extent um, R is used at other universities. I would say at now, at least. So all of that combined, you know, I, I made a I made a decision to make my dissertation as quantitative as possible, mm -hmm. while still combining linguistics and psychology. Um, And, and finding essentially a brand new uh, or a, a new-ish topic that hasn't that hadn't been investigated at the time, and I think that I accomplished that. So I also wanted to do something that that transcended disciplines in some way that wasn't only linguistics. I also wanted to do psychology, which is why I focused on personality um, research as well. Like I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, for example. What were some of your modeling approaches, or like, how did you choose like what sort of um, algorithms or statistical methods to to proceed with? I'm going to talk about the data a little bit because mm -hmm. I think that's an important piece of context to have to understand. Data collection uh, process is twofold. 
participants fill out a questionnaire of demographic information and the big five personality inventory, but it was a short inventory of only 10 items, so it could be filled out very quickly. They also provided their Twitter handles, which I then used to get their tweets through the Twitter API. Now, you're in a situation where you have a very rich data set. It's not, it's not very big by modern standards. It was roughly 20,000 tweets, but those tweets are a lot richer because you get one, you get the personality inventory with those tweets and you get demographic information, right? So you're looking at various, various approaches to analyzing those data. One, um, I had to use natural language processing to, to essentially um, deal with the tweets, the textual data, and to read out um, emojis, which I then um, used to match against a um, emoji inventory of sentiment scores. So I could calculate sentiment scores or mean sentiment scores um, for gender and age groups, for example. And then I also used uh, the, the, actual, the actual personality inventory data to um to run the statistical analyses right and so i used i I completely ran the gamut from a simple um t-test all the way through um linear mixed effects regression models to account for non non non-independence in the data and so i'm going to give you a simple example right if you wanted to model the sentiment score of a participant or of all the participants, then you're in a situation where you have non-independence because each individual Twitter user didn't just write one tweet, right? And so I modeled sentiment score based on on personality score, for example, and based on um, gender, okay? And I used the linear mixed effects regression model for that to account for that for non-independence. And what I found was really interesting, one, women are happier than men in in my data set which is which has been proven to be true um cross-culturally not only in in german twitter users but also i mean it's true across media and across um, cultures and um and you see also that more extroverted people are a little bit happier or significant you have to say significantly happier um not by a lot but a little bit um than than other personality types, right? So that that was one example. Um, another example, or another thing I did was I looked at the tweets, and I used a software called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count. It's um, the the main developer is um, Professor James Pennebaker at UT Austin, um, a psychologist who um, came up with the software, and I think even back in nineteen ninety nine. If I remember correctly, and what it does is essentially it lets you feed text into it, and it calculates the percentage of words in over seventy word categories. Okay, so you can have positive emotion words, you can have negative emotion words, um, and so on and so forth. Right, and that that lets you gain insight into a person's not only linguistic inventory but also their if you spin this further and go more into the the personality research or into psychological research into their um into their behavior or their predispositions or or their their feelings or how they cope 
if you could do a diary analysis and see how they cope with things, for example. But what I did, I used the, the percentage of, um, of positive emotion words and again, modeled that based on, or I, I mean, I did it for a lot of different work categories, but positive emotion words is one example. And I modeled it gender, age, and certain personality types. Okay. So in the big five, maybe I should have, I should probably have said that before. The big five are extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, conscientiousness, and openness to new experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you see is that, again, extroverted people um, use a little more positive emotion words, um, and females use more positive emotion words. But interestingly, what I did is I used a, a GAM, a, general, a generalized additive model, because it lets you model nonlinear data. And natural data, often we often like them to be linear, but they're often not nonlinear, so you see a curve. And interestingly enough, when you look at the age distribution, right, like, let's say going from 18 through 60, I mean, my, my cutoff was 45. So let's say 18 through 45. Um, then in my case, there was a certain, there was a slight U curve. So after a certain age, there was a drop off in, in the use of positive emotion words, which tentatively could indicate that, you know, as you, you get older, you get less happy. And then it picks up again towards retirement age. Um, that is, that was just a, that was a, essentially that was a, how could you put this? This was a finding that wasn't really planned, but that oftentimes, you know, you get findings that just pop up. And then I looked into it more and this U curve of happiness has actually been found in psychological research before. So it was really cool to see that it was replicated, right? But I could I could never have replicated it if I if I had used a different model that only models that can only model linear data right which is which is one 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 very important you know lesson that that you learn doing this stuff that you have to really be conscientious about about the models you pick for for your analyses. Right. Um, uh, just a quick note on that. Uh, in your opinion. What are some of the very uh, unique characteristic of uh, linguistic dataset? Linguistics, it's that's probably even too broad to just speak of linguistic data in general, because you would have to talk about the subfields of linguistics to, to to become one more granular and to to be able to even summarize this to some extent. So, in my in my case, right, it was um, sociolinguistics mostly. Mm. which looks at um, language change and looks at how people how people use language right um, and the different pa usage patterns of language for example based on sociological variables like race and gender and age um, whereas a syntactician might only, might look at the syntactic structure more I right see. I see so it really depends. A phonologist might look at, like you know, about look at at frequencies and and formant patterns, and mm. so I feel like it, it's very difficult. So let's 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 put it this way: there can be a lot of quantifiable data, right? That's that that comes out of um, I don't know. That comes out of um, phonological research. Or you could do an eye tracking study where you have an eye tracking device and you get like you get data points that way. 
but of course there can also be a lot of um, unstructured textual data right and and all of those come with their own with their own problems and advantage disadvantages and advantages right so i would i would argue that you know even in a even in a fairly small data set like like i had like 20,000 tweets it's i mean it's next to impossible to to go through that tweet by tweet and then as also at the same time be able to keep track of everything right which is why you have to use um natural language processing methods to to parse out the information you need with a computer mm-hmm. right with a with a tool like um, with r or or python so i would say and that's that's what makes linguistic data so unique sure. if i just just think about it just think about the the amount of linguistic research that has to go computational linguistic research that has to go into building siri or alexa right right Getting, getting different. Get, I mean, even under like machine understanding of different dialects. That that was one of the greatest feats um, that you know that have been accomplished in the recent past. I would say definitely. And, and we're not, we're not, we're not completely there yet, of course. But it's it's made big strides. Yeah. So along with getting your PhD, you also got a certificate in statistical modeling. Um, yeah. What were some of the most useful courses that you took for this certificate? Okay, so I have to a little context. So I, I, since I already knew that I wanted to be in data science, I, I started taking classes outside of my department fairly early on. And I, t- I took statistics classes in the psychology department and I took a statistics class in the sociology department, right? But when I was... I defended my dissertation in December of 2017, and you know didn't make the didn't make the cutoff date for a December graduation. So I essentially had to wait a semester until May to graduate to May until May 2018. So my my thought process was I could either you know sit on my ass um, for a semester or I could do something useful, and I I for some weird. I don't know, it was a weird coincidence. I found out that Ball State's math department had just implemented the certificate. Um, not even, I don't know, not even a year before. Maybe, I think, yeah, as a matter of fact, I think it was the, the first student in this new certificate program. And I would say one of the, the most useful classes that I took even before was, you know, I mean, I would say... Regression alone can be fairly complex. I mean, it's very it's easy to understand the you know the you know the more macro things, but it can be very it can be very nitty gritty once you get into the very important details. So, um, and one of the most important things I learned was uh, was generalized linear models mm-hmm. because they expand once you understand a linear model, right? Like once you understand um, linear regression. Um, you soon realize that you're somewhat limited, and once, but once you take a class or two on generalized linear models, it just opens up so many different things, right? All of a sudden, you're in the world where you can where you can do classification and you use logistic regression, or you can you can do um, Poisson distri- uh, Poisson regression or um, negative binomial um, analysis. This is negative binomial analysis was one of the things that I had to use for. For my dissertation as well, because I mean, a lot of tweets. I mean, it's a lot of count data essentially, right? Right. So, 
And then I took another generalized um, GLM model class essentially with the math department, and that was a, a lot more theory focused. Okay, so I'm talking, I'm talking matrix algebra and all of this stuff. And um, at the end of the day, like I would say, you, I mean, you don't have to master this, right? Like it's important to, I think it's it's a good idea to you know get a you get a look under the hood so to say of, of generalized linear models um but i mean you don't have to write this stuff yourself anymore this is why we have r or whatever mm. so but it was really interesting to get essentially like a theoretical look at how the models work internally and learn about how the matrices are multi multiplied to to essentially get you the coefficients and all of this stuff so um, yeah, I would I would still maintain that a class in linear models and a class in generalized linear models is probably I mean those are probably two of the most important classes that you can take. I see, I see. Um, at Ball State, you also work for the uh, Digital Scholarship Lab as a data science consultant. So can yep. you go over your work there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right after uh, I defended, essentially, I I did two things, and this is how this came about. Um, even before I graduated uh, or defended my dissertation, I gave um, our workshops at Ball State University for um, mostly focused on um, data visualization because um, I actually I emailed the people at our studio to see how like how they would approach a, a, a gargantuan task like starting a, a data you know a data workshop or an R workshop. And they, they advised me to start with visualizations because you immediately get something out of it, okay? So you don't have to first understand statistics and then learn a programming language. Um, you can actually sit down and you can, you can you know, get a nice histogram or a, a scatter plot out of it fairly, fairly easily. So through that, like through doing that, I got in touch with the people at the Digital Scholarship Lab and they hired me to do a an analysis of a diary study they were running they wanted to understand what people in the muncie community um, talk about and so it was it's, it has an anthropological component and it has a um, uh, a sociological component where they essentially have people in the muncie community fill out questionnaires or diaries and my task was essentially to make sense of those unstructured text data essentially right so I, I built them i built them a dashboard with shiny where they can essentially by day and by gender and by time look at what the the most frequent word the most frequent words are um etc etc can you uh, can you recommend a couple of resources for about the audience who want to learn more about our package as well as uh, building shiny application. In the beginning, when I learned, when I saw what other people already knew, and still to this day, I think you never, you never stop learning, right? Um, it, this can be a very intimidating process because it seems so vast. It seems like there's so much to learn. And I would honestly, I would just go online. I can highly recommend DataCamp. This is this is what I still use for a lot of my for a lot of my training. Uh, right now, I'm doing their their um, time series um, skill track. Um, 
one, I would get the um, the R for Data Science book. I think it's one of the most genius books ever written because it's very well structured with reproducible examples and, and instructions. Mm-hmm. And I would just start. Like, just, honestly, you can't learn it all at the same time. I think, you know, take baby steps, take small bites and, and just build your knowledge and and try to and try to apply it as quickly as possible if you can. Like if you're writing your master's thesis and even if even I would even go so far as to say that even if you have to use SPSS for your statistical analyses because you can't do it in R, but you can do your visuals in R, then do that, right? And then learn the statistics in R later or whatever. But um, I would say, yeah, get started. Udemy, I did I did the data science specialization um, on Coursera, which that can actually take pretty long. I think it took me a year to to completely complete it because it's just it's just so many it's a lot of courses. And if you're if you're in grad school at the same time or if you're working, then you have to do it in your free time essentially. But yeah, pick something, right? Even I think even even LinkedIn now has has R classes, and and Linda has R classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say all of those online classes. At the end of the day, it comes down to to preference, to personal preference. I would honestly, if I if people ask, if a friend asked me, I would say, go to Data Camp and take two R intro classes. Right. Right. Because if you have two R intro classes, then you can already be more granular, and then you can say. Well, now I want to learn about visualization, and now I want to learn about linear models in R, and now I want to learn this, or I want to learn that, uh, or I want to focus only on on you know natural language processing. I want to learn how to work with strings in R. Um, so it gets it gets. I think once you have the basics down, it gets a lot easier to essentially hone in on a specific topic, and then learn that and then learn another thing and learn another thing it's just going to take a while and that's okay it that it takes it takes everybody a while to get this stuff down right mm-hmm. and you know we i i still feel like i've only scratched the surface of what's possible so um yeah don't be don't worry yeah um i personally can attest to that since i have uh, been taking a few classes from datacam and um you know all the videos and the the um real case study examples that are really useful because they provided immediate feedback, right? So so you can right. see your code and you can run it live and you can see like, you know, join us yeah. in your visualization in real time. And, yeah. Uh, here's another pro tip though. Um, I, what I found is that with any online class, it doesn't, it doesn't matter which one, the reten- the retention rate of knowledge can be lower if you don't really actually study the accompanying material, right? So if you, let's say you, you're taking the, the data camp class, honestly, really download the PDFs and, and read through this stuff again. Like you don't have to spend two hours on it, but the retention rate is just going to be so much higher if you, if you read through it again. Okay. Mm-hmm. How was your job search process after you finished your PhD? I would say, it's a matter of what your expectations are. I think, I think there's still people who submit three applications and then think they submitted a lot of applications, right? So that's no. Um, you just have it's a. I think it's a numbers game. Okay, um, you'll you'll just get a lot of rejections and that's okay. And it's it's 
I'm, I'm telling you this now. Most of the time, it's not you. But it's just, it's just a numbers game, and you have to keep applying. And especially if you're coming, if you're coming like me, if you're like, if you want to say like a non-traditional data scientist, right? Like somebody who hasn't done a master's in statistics or hasn't done a master's in information um, sciences and technology or whatever. You honestly, you're fighting somewhat of an uphill battle mm -hmm. because you, it's up to you to convince your future employer that you can do the job. So, um, I would do two things. I would, and this sounds almost cliche at this point because people probably have heard this a million times, but do informational interviews, right? Talk to people who are already in the field you want to be in. I honestly, your, your first um, interviewee, Jonathan Leslie, um, I had an informational interview with him. He's a great guy. He's super helpful and super friendly, and we had a great conversation. And okay, yeah. um, so that that was one of the people I talked to. And I would just suggest that because not only do you make connections, but you also figure out what you want to do and what you don't want to do. I see. And once I would also not be like, so so what if your first job is not your dream job, right? If you just have to get the foot in the door. And, and don't think that three applications is a lot of applications, right? Like we're talking, we're talking, I don't know, 80 plus applications, maybe, mm -hmm. especially these days where it's so easy because you have, I don't know, you have LinkedIn easy apply and you have LinkedIn apply and, um, most, most companies don't require a cover letter anymore. So build a bomb ass resume i built my i built my resume completely in in powerpoint which is very finicky and nitpicky and very granular but you have full control over where stuff goes and that's still a way you can make your resume stand out to recruiters right we're we're hiring right now and i'm i'm hiring essentially and and i have to read resumes and it's it can be surprising how how little time people spend on on resumes right, right right make sure your resume is really really clean and the old adage still holds don't write a six-page resume mm -hmm. right even two pages is usually is usually too long like be be more specific and leave out any excess verbiage like people don't need that people what i think is important to do is put your linkedin link on there and put your github on there one thing that's good right now is that, and I assume that's going to hold for the next years, is that the there's so many data jobs out there, and, and data will never die, right? I mean, data there's there's going to be data jobs um, even years from now. So don't don't despair. That would be my first tip. And the other tip is that if you know that that's what you want to do, and you're from a non-traditional background. Um, this is actually a tip that I got from Brandon Rohrer at Facebook. Um, he's also a super great resource um, and a super friendly guy. Um, build stuff, right? I mean, popular, popularize your, your, your projects and put your projects on the shiny server and let people, you know, share the link with people and let people see what you're able to do. And, because that way you can you can make up for maybe what what you what you're lacking that people 
you know, half from, from actual data science programs, if you want to call it that way. But um, I would even say, yeah, just build stuff, um, start, a, start a GitHub repository, share your work, and and that way you can you can you know that's social proof that way you can show that you're you're able to do the job right yeah and and i understand it's it's somewhat sometimes really difficult because even you know even for junior roles um employers are often asking for stuff that's very that's not attainable right so don't also don't despair when you read all those job postings because they're often looking for unicorn that doesn't exist so if you read a job that you think you're, you'd be good for and you like, just apply. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is that they, that they say no or, they, or you don't hear back from them, but that's about it, okay? Yeah. And, what, for example, what was a problem for me was um, many places I applied to, they wanted SQL skills, mm. right? Now, what's, what, what's one to do? Like, even, even on Data Camp right now, there's maybe three SQL classes, right? So SQL is not as... I mean, it's not as easily accessible because if you're not a data science or a, maybe if you're not a computer science student, it's, it's a lot bit more difficult to get access to an actual database to practice SQL with. Yeah. And so just, you know, be, be aware of, of stuff like that. And then, and then there's still ways you can, you can do it, but also be honest. I mean, you know, they, a lot of employers, they want you to honesty can often be more important, right? So don't say you have a, like a 10 out of 10 SQL skills if you've never worked with a database. Got it. Um, because honestly, you can learn so quickly on the job that um, if you know R or if you know Python and your employer will understand that you're capable of, um, you have the intellectual capacity um, to learn SQL. Right, I would say that R and Python are probably more more difficult than SQL. Yeah, so so let's talk about your current employer, Life Intent. So as far as I know, um, Life Intent is a people-based marketing technology platform that is uh, changing the way brands and publishers think about email. So what right. were some of the interesting projects that you have involved with at the company since you joined? Um, yeah, so one of the things, one of the recent things that I've done is essentially, um, one, I, for the, for the business intelligence team, I established a, a complete reproducibility methodology in terms of, um, you know, GitHub repositories, um, where everything is version controlled. Um, all of our automated reports are version controlled now. Um, we implemented, uh, we recently implemented RStudio Connect. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's one, it's fantastic because it lets you host everything from going from a, an R markdown document, um, to shiny dashboards and just PDFs and it lets you schedule stuff very easily and, and it pushes right outside, like it, you can just push it out of our studio. So it's very convenient. So that's one of the, that's one of the most recent things, um, that I've done and that took a lot of time. Um, right now, I'm building a big tool for um, to track the the health of the overall business. I see. In con in conjunction with data engineering, I honestly I also had to do or have been doing a lot more data engineering that than I initially thought. So, which is good. I mean, it's a great learning experience, and you get mu you get much more 
into how you know data structures work and mm-hmm. um, even if you consider yourself to be a, a, a data scientist from a, from a more analytical perspective I think it's very very important to stay open-minded and to you know to learn as much as you can right be, I mean because that's ultimately that's just gonna make working with engineers so much more so much easier yeah and so now you know, now I'm building. I'm building. I'm also building tables in, in Redshift and in and Athena, and I'm you know, and I'm getting those things into into R and into our um, data science tools essentially. I see. Yeah. Another thing that I built with Shiny is a is a tool that lets um, that lets the the stakeholder, the end user, essentially handle their own ticket requests. So we, as the business intelligence teams in, ev- in every company, probably they get, you know, requests from other parts of the company saying, Hey, we, we need this and this information. And I built a tool in, um, as a shiny application that essentially let they can access it and then they can pull the data themselves based on what they need. Um, and you recently moved from a data analyst role to, uh, data analytics manager role. So how, yes. how has this uh, transition been like? Oh, it was. Uh, it just happened. So um, it was. I'm very happy because it, it it only took six months, which is very fortunate for me. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm. I can't be. I can't be doing everything wrong. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's very smooth. I mean, I'm I'm I. Of course, I'm taking on my responsibilities. I'm way more involved in the in the in the hiring process now, um, and yeah, so that's that's basically it. I mean, I'm I'm still doing a lot of the things I've I've done before, mm-hmm. um, but I I think I have to carry more responsibility now yeah. for things, and, right? And which is which is natural. I mean, that's the natural progression of things. Definitely, um, but. It also gets you. It also gives you a little more flexibility and um, and say probably I would say. But ultimately, I mean, you get more experience and then you move up the ladder. That's just you know that's the natural progression of things. And I I, I wouldn't say that just because you you move up the ladder doesn't mean that you ha- you don't do it don't do grunt work anymore. You don't build a table anymore, right? I mean, that's I, I hope that I can I can be doing that even moving further up the ladder because that's part of it's part of the job and it's it's interesting and it keeps you it keeps you engaged too for sure right um and i'm just kind of curious so at, at life in 10 you know like for your manager role do you have to um interact with um other teams besides bi besides data science you know and how, how does collaboration process looks like like um you know between your team and i say the engineering team or like the product team yeah. right right yeah so i guess this is an important this is a very important question and which is um it cannot be overstated how important communication skills are because i mean i have to i have i i deal with people from the c level and i deal with people who are you know csms and um work with with clients directly and you have to be able to bridge all of that, right? So you can you can get a request from an executive level employee, and um, then you one you have to 
shuffle things around. You might have to prioritize differently. So, you know, you know, project management skills again and time management skills again. But you also have to deal with people at a different level and you have to be able to explain things in, in many different ways. Yep. Right. So you can't just be, I mean, oftentimes I like working independently. Um, I don't need a lot of oversight, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to be a good communicator, especially because you're, I mean, you're supposed to drive company decisions with your data and you can't do that if you can talk to people and and that way convince them of of maybe your approach or why you're doing certain things and um or and or train them or help them understand what what's going on right apart to me at least being being a data scientist or being an analyst is is also enabling and empowering other people to to get a to get better access to data not only like physical access to data but also understanding data better essentially i see and um yeah that that kind of went full circle back to the part that you made earlier in our conversation about you know um the ability to communicate with um people from from various background various um circumstances right like right, you mentioned when you were a teacher you have to like teach student you know a different age group and like yeah that's, that's very similar to to what you just talked about how do you um bring the value of data and, and communicate that with, you know, both stakeholders in the C-suite to like your clients and, and you know, your, your yeah. employees and, and uh, you know, people of that nature. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so um, from your experience, though, what is the single, the single biggest difference between doing data science in the industry versus doing data science in academia? <laughs> uh, oh, man. Yeah. Uh, definitely, I mean, when I was writing my dissertation, I could just, one, I could completely determine my own timelines and it didn't really matter how much time I spent on something. I, I was just responsible for at some point delivering a final dissertation, right? Mm. So I would say when you make the transition from academia into data science or into the industry, you're going to be in a much more fast-paced environment and people have, unlike your professors, people will have different expectations. People will have deadlines in mind and when you first talk about a project, they will want a, a timeline and a scope. And that is it's important to quickly learn how to manage expectations, essentially, right? So it's better to under promise and over deliver than to say, yeah, I can get this done in a week and then it takes four weeks, mm. which is highly likely because you, you oftentimes you can't foresee what, what the roadblocks are, right? Or you, you hit a bottleneck because you're, you're waiting on information from a different department and, and all of those things. So, um, yeah, it's going to be, I would say it's going to be a lot more fast paced and it's going to be a lot more, um, which is, I mean, it can be a good thing. It depends on, it depends on what you like. Um, and it's not always only one thing, right? So of course, sometimes you have more time, sometimes you have less time, right? Um, but be, be ready to adjust to things more quickly, I would say, than in academia. And, and 
switch your mindset to a bottom line approach which i would i would assume that if you if you if somebody wanted to make a transition from academia into the industry then you kind of also want have to want to be in a business setting when and businesses operate based on bottom lines that's how you know the economy works mm-hmm. so um yeah just have that in mind right all of a sudden i mean nobody attached a dollar value to your master's thesis or to your dissertation um but when you move into the industry definitely a dollar value is going to be attached to to your project because your project is going to use manpower or it's going to use um you know work work hours um of different departments maybe and all of that costs money yeah i see um so you have to be much more essentially cognizant of 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 your time, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that does kind of circle back to the part that you uh, mentioned earlier, which is about the importance of project management skill, right? So, right. Um, yeah, and all that, understand the opportunity cost as well as um, the, the time it takes to, to finish a project is, is quite critical. And um, so, so um, yeah, lastly, how would you describe the data science community in New York? That's a good question. I've, um, I've, I've joined the the meetup R group, but I think it's it's inactive at this point. <laughs> uh, I wanted to like I I if somebody hears this and is in the New York R group, um, I want to meet you. <laughs> um, I mean, na- just from a very like let's say from a thirty thousand foot bird's eye view, um, I would say. I mean, the data community in New York is probably awesome, right? I mean. Um, It's one of the biggest centers of, of tech uh, besides Silicon Valley, probably in Chicago, maybe. Um, so I would say it's very, very much striving. Um, so, but I'm, I'm currently, I'm on the lookout for essentially meetup um, opportunities um, to, to just meet other professionals in the field. Mm, definitely. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's be a lot of people who, Who are interested in uh, doing the same thing, right? Okay, so so Matthias, at this part of the conversation, I want to move on to the cl- closing segment, in which yeah. I'm gonna uh, ask you like basically three quick questions, so you can give tactical advice for people who want to um, to gain those. Okay, um, mm-hmm. the first question is, what are the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you really admire? First, I mean, you can't, you can't, you know, leave out Google and Amazon um, when you talk about companies that that doing exceptional data science work. I mean, Google really catapulted deep learning and all of this stuff in, in into the into the mainstream essentially, and I think they're both companies that use data science in very ingenious ways. Not only to, to drive a bottom line, but also to to empower people. If you think about how many tools they they give you for free, right? That let's like Amazon gives you. I don't know. Amazon has a free tier on their AWS service, and it just lets you play around with it. Um, on my website, I wrote a um, I wrote a, a blog post on how to set up um, an X large instance to to do deep learning. Um, with our studio in the cloud, and even that is it's build by the minute, 
Okay, so you don't have to pay tremendous sums um, as a novice or as a student. I think, and you know, it's billed by the hour, so um, seven or eight dollars. So it's it's not really like it's it's really something you can cover. This thing. Okay. This is really something that you can that you can easily pocket, right? It's not something that's going to break the bank. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Google is doing the same thing. So I think both they have to be commanded for for their willingness to let people play around with their inventions, essentially. Okay, and then one other company I think that's doing good work is Airbnb, and I'm saying that because. I think it's one of the companies that have used data science from a very early stage. And I, the head of data science at Airbnb, I forget her name, um, but they have a very clear definition of what data science means to them and what data scientists are. I mean, it's still, to some extent, it's still a very vague thing, right? And some companies only call people data scientists if they do machine learning, right? And then there's other companies who call people data scientists who only, who in, you know, in quotes, only do Excel stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but there's so much more in between. And, you know, I, in my opinion, I share Hadley Wickham's opinion and, and Brandon Rohrer's opinion. I think um, if you answer questions with data, then you're a data scientist. But not everybody might share that approach. Um, but I think Airbnb is a company that has it well figured out. So a lot of people are data scientists with different um, foci, essentially. So you can be um, a data scientist, but you do data engineering, or you can be a data scientist, but you're an analyst, and you can be a data scientist, and you're more responsible for modeling, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I read that blog post from the Airbnb, you know, um, data science manager. Essentially, she categorize you know um the the roles at uh at the Airbnb into like three three sides right so uh, yeah data scientists doing algorithms data scientists doing inference and then data scientists doing analytics and each of yeah. them each, each of those roles require like a different set of skill and um which is really really helpful because it gives you like a clear uh flavor of you know what what skill that you want to to hone and what what um what kind of work you got to enjoy so uh, a lot of people i know personally um can can take that as an as a sort of guideline you know for for the type of uh, skill that they should be or classes that they should take which is really helpful yeah absolutely um the second question is that what is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset okay i give you two books okay so one is r for data scientists uh, for data science like i talked uh, like i said before and the other one, that's really more, that's for enjoyment, okay? It's uh, The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives by Leonard Malodinov. Mm. And it's a really great book because it not only does it teach you about like the origins of, of statistics and regression and game theory and all of this stuff, but it also shows you how randomness really plays a very important and much and very often understated role in our lives and people want to see people are built to see patterns even if there are no patterns right so it's it's a really great book that i can only highly recommend interesting and uh, i'll be put that in the show notes for sure 
Um, and the last question is that, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Uh, what would I tweet about? Um, yeah. Keep, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> no, I would say, like, don't give up. Um, there's a lot of jobs out there for da aspiring data scientists. Um, be flexible. And re also realize that you're fighting an uphill battle sometimes, right? But that's that's the name of the game. It's nobody's fault. That's just the way it is. But no, then I, in my experience, nobody's working against you at also. So it's it's pretty much you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Keep learning. Okay. So if that if if I only had one tweet, I would say just keep learning. Always keep learning. Um, that's it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Matthias, thank you so much, you know, for our conversation today. And I'm sure that, um, you know, we can all learn from some of your advice as well as your um, uh, experience, you know, um, both back in Germany as well as your PhD at, in the U.S. as well as some of the um, hard-earned lesson from um, working in the industry. And uh, I will be sure to include all the... Um, classes and resources and books that you mentioned into the show notes so people can uh, dig in. Um, yeah, so thanks a lot, Matthias. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. And yeah, I hope some I hope people can use some of my advice at least. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.